0: The start on demand. on demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Thursday edition of the podcast for the start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNab. And today we are talking about the all-important subject of potato chips. Mackling was at the store the other day and he was looking at some of the weirdo flavors and he thought, "What's up with that?" So we're going to talk about our favorite chips and whether or not they should have these bizarre flavors. We're also going to say hi to Leah Hextall. She joins us in studio as we have launched Hextall on Hockey. It's a new feature, so you'll hear our conversation with her, and you will hear the first edition of Hextall on Hockey. A retired security guard from HSC exclusively speaks to Global News and 680 CJOB regarding whether or not security guards have the power to intervene when things get out of hand in hospitals. We've been talking a lot about the rising violence in hospitals, particularly driven by meth. Mike Holmes and Mike Holmes Jr. pay us a visit. Mackling was quite excited for this. He loves his renovations and renovation TV shows. We're going to get an update on a Nova Scotia man whose daughter sent out a tweet asking for people to send him a birthday card for his 93rd birthday because he's lonely since his wife died earlier this year and the result has been overwhelming i went to see cirque du soleil crystal at bell mts place i'll tell you what i thought about that and an interesting edition of the small town salute this week more details on that coming up a little bit later Mackling, McGarry, <laughs> McNabb, Braun, Poitras. Of course you
1: found some. How far did you have to go? Ooh, Ooh, not
2: a bad not choice far, either.
0: Huh? Is there a sound that's simultaneously so exciting and problematic as opening a bag of potato chips? Mm-mm. I don't even know why we're talking about potato chips, but I'm excited to eat these. So I'll tell you why. you okay.
1: need to pass
2: those around or we're just going to all watch yeah, you eat these goes. chips?
0: Yesterday was the
1: HSC millionaire uh, deadline. The fall bonus. Should have been oh, the winter you. bonus. Anyway, I digress. Um, and I was at Shopper's Drug Mart and I noticed this rack of Lay's chips. Yep. Bunch of flavors I'd never seen before. Okay. Do you want to go to the audio from the video? Yeah, here we go. Here we go. All right. So, one of the advantages about being out in the community and hanging out here at Shopper's Drug Mart is um, hello. New flavors of chips. Um, when did these become a deal and why did nobody tell me? Lay's grilled cheesed. Sandwich chips. I'll be taking some of these home. <laughs> pizza chips. I—I I mean, I think that's been attempted before on a certain level, but uh, I don't know if this is like a margarita pizza or what they're doing here with the basil and the tomato. And if there's anything better in the world than potato chips, it's tacos. So why not combine the two? That's what they've done here. a little tub of sour cream just just a small one and the taco chips I think I'm all good for tonight yeah. So, uh, taco chips, a little sour cream. You can't go wrong. Yes, I know it's basil, not basil. Basil ah. is the character on Faulty Towers. I Lots got people it. People say basil.
2: It's yeah, still wrong, but it, it's- it is wrong. Is that like
1: the American version of it? Don't they it say is. basil down there? It like is. Pecan, anyway, we only pecan. have a few minutes oh. here. We want to talk about <laughs> the crazy flavors of chips. Not to interrupt you, Cam,
2: but grilled cheese. Chips? It's my favorite sandwich, like, it hands is. down. But I are do Are you not... dipping
0: those in ketchup, though?
1: Nope. Ugh.
2: Keep it keep it playing. But I don't... <laughs> I'm coughing over the chips. Somebody else talk.
0: Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I tried the grilled cheese chips. They're okay. Yeah. I like <laughs> cheese chips, like uh, the old Dutch has that old gratin or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those are good. But the grilled cheese chips didn't do it for me. I, I can't remember if I tried the pizza one. The taco one wasn't bad. I I like when Lay's does this. They did that. It shouldn't work as a potato chip, but they did Montreal Steak Spice a few years back, and it was awesome.
2: No, I don't like, I was trying to say, I don't like any of those flavors. Like, I want to stick with the... I don't know,
3: basic four, five. Uh, I, I agree with you. I like the regular Ripple uh, salt and vinegar. Salt and vinegar, I don't go, yes. for, I don't go much farther than that. Yeah. I usually just eat plain, but I remember back in high school, like 25 years ago, and I wonder if it's because we were a high school, we had a little canteen, and they would always give us the weirdest flavored chips, and they like... Turkey dinner flavored and f- <laughs> fries and gravy flavored. And you never really saw them in the store. I think we're just like guinea pigs for old Dutch or Lays or whatever it was. And I guess however many we bought helped them decide whether or not they'd carry on and didn't work.
1: What was that bizarre flavor one we had kicking around here a few weeks ago? The pulled pork. pork? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Not they they the, rarely taste like what they say they taste like. Right?
1: Well, all too often they do, though. Like, uh, so? do you remember the buffalo wing and blue cheese ones that Old Dutch had a few years ago? They they were actually really good. Wow. I like those ones. Yeah, yeah no, those I'll say really they're
3: good, good. but as, as like, it doesn't taste like what it says. Like the pulled pork
0: ones was fine, but it didn't taste like pulled pork. What so, did it taste like? It it Tastes like a flavored potato chip. I think <laughs> so, that's why I like the Montreal steak one because it tasted like what it yeah. said it was. It was so it was it shouldn't be gross, but it was. Delightful,
2: but maybe if you have a chip problem, which I do, I do. should be picking the gross flavors because I wouldn't go. I'd eat maybe three of those pulled pork chips, and that's, I'd be what, done.
0: I, that's what I
3: said about smoking when I first started. Oh, this is gross. I'll never become addicted. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, uh, Old Dutch Ripple is my meth. Oh, my. Uh, We'd love to hear from you about your favorite uh, chip flavors. Of course, in the States, uh, uh, they don't have ketchup chips, although maybe one of the major chip companies trying to bring ketchup chips to the U.S. Sour cream and onion was sort of a no-go for a long time down south. Wow. I've seen that. Dill pickle. That's the only one. Like I will, I literally hold it in my mouth and then spit it out. Like I will you don't like not. Dill pickle.
0: No, that's the only
1: one. Rule. I will not even
0: swallow the dill pickle. You know what works uh, surprisingly well is ketchup chips with dill pickle dip.
2: Yeah. I th- I, th- I mean I haven't tried that but I could see yeah.
0: that that's a good combo. Yes, I, I thought it was weird but I, I tried it. It was good. So you Greg's know Greg's making a face. He no,
1: like I, I, this is the dill pickle. I'm thinking dip <laughs> and any kind of chip works fine for me. Plain Tostitos. That's my that's my jam as well. I love
0: those. Just eating plain Tostitos. That's it. Yeah,
1: no nothing. salsa or anything. Oh well, little every now and then. But now just stick with the plain. How about the cheese queso? Oh, that's good. That's good stuff. Just I'm not it saying up. it's not good stuff.
0: mackling McGarry, McNabb on 680 CJOB, be right before we introduce our next guest, and we are very excited to do so. Just a couple of text messages on their previous conversation on potato chips. Shannon says, Old Dutch Mexican chili. Mm-hmm. Bravo. Uh, another listener says, Smoky bacon. I always forget about the bacon chips.
1: Yeah, bacon chips are did delicious. They go, did they go away or are they just kind of hit it down there. In the
0: bottom right hand corner?
2: I don't let again. <laughs> I'm just the name. I'm just poo pooing on all this. Just why? I don't know. I love bacon. Don't get me wrong, but
0: well, why don't we ask our guest? <laughs> Leah
2: Hextall this is, what is here. Came in to yep. talk
4: about. The hot topics of the day, exactly. Potato chips, but I mean, listen. I lived down in the states for a while, and I missed my ketchup chips like you wouldn't believe. To the point where I said something on Twitter about it, and Old Dutch was kind enough to send me a really big box of potato chips in ketchup flavor. And I introduced them to all my American coworkers down there, and they all thought we were crazy Canadians, like always. So I there you it. go. But I love them so.
0: So... Hextall on Hockey makes its debut. Actually, later this hour, uh, we're very excited to have you as part of our sports team. So Hextall on Hockey, what's it all about?
4: Well, Hextall on Hockey is just pretty much a hot take. It's one thing I've never shied away from is having an opinion about what's going on in any of the markets that I've worked on. Uh, whether you like it or you don't, you're going to talk about it. And that's the whole point of this is just to engage with the viewers and the, and the listeners and just get them ready for the hockey season and talk about the hot topics that are going on. And, and just not even just always hot topics, but just what's of interest to the fans base. And we will specifically be focusing on the Winnipeg Jets, but we'll step out every once in a while. You know, you had Tom Wilson get suspended yesterday. We might talk about that one day. It all depends, but it's just a little bit to get everybody going and you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it.
1: So Taylor Pishke, the Manitoba volleyball superstar, right? Tom Wilson's other half, Tom Wilson, the Capitals, he's going to miss 20 games to start the season. But I think most fans are geared up. The NHL got underway last night. Of course the Maple police beating the Canadians in overtime amongst other games, seven nothing Washington over Boston. Brad Marchand gonna get a gonna get a suspension. Speaking of suspensions for what he did to Lars Eller.
4: Well, you look at that and the fact is is that Brad Marchand went out there and really targeted him. And I understand that he might say, Well, I didn't like the way he was celebrating. Tough. They put up seven on you. Take it ingest it. You don't go and attack him. That's very predatorial. So if the NHL is going to look at certain things and not other things, then that's where they get themselves in trouble and has always been the sticking point with fans is that there's very limited consistency when it comes to who gets suspended and who doesn't. Now with Tom Wilson, he received a match penalty. So right there, uh, people need to understand as soon as you get a match penalty, you are suspended until the commissioner decides that you are going to play again. In Tom Wilson's case, he got his hearing. It's 20 games. With Brad Marchand last night, he got um, a game misconduct, so it's not the same thing. So he can go back on the ice whenever they feel or their next game is. But it'll be interesting to see whether or not the NHL calls him up. He does have a history like many others do, but they also say that's part of his game. So at some point, the NHL has to decide what does that mean? Do
2: you think that's a rising point of contention with fans? Because I know even myself, I feel like... more. I'm increasingly saying, hang on, like, it seems like this is real inconsistency in the league. I don't know if that's because now I'm into the Jets and I'm paying more attention to what does or does not happen to players. But it feels like you're hearing that kind of frustration with how penalties are being handed out and suspensions and all the rest.
4: I think there is a lot of frustration because there's the human factor. And that's just the bottom line in this is that when it comes to the referees, this game is so fast and it is so hard. The refs have a very tough job. But you hear it not only from the fans. You hear it from the players, you hear it from the coaches, there is a lack of consistency within the refereeing, refereeing within the National Hockey League, and I think that is the starting point, because they're the ones on the ice that need to take control of these games to make sure that things like this don't happen. You can't tell me at that point in the game, but let's put it on also the teams. You can't tell me at that point in the game that Brad Marchand's not on the ice for a reason. I mean, we know what he does. He's an elite scorer, but he also has that, they call him the rat for a reason, and the reason being is that he goes in there and he stirs it up. And he even said after the game, he did not come out and apologize it at all he I was said. Doing my job. He said, I tuned him up. He said he will remember that. And that's still a part of the hockey mentality. So there's inconsistency in refereeing. There's some inconsistency with the league when it comes to suspensions. When it comes to Tom Wilson, that suspension that was laid out. I mean, I don't know how anybody can be surprised at 20 games. This is all about his history. We're talking about someone that had three suspensions last year. This is his fourth in 105 games. It's a new precedent according to the NHL Department of Player Safety. Four suspensions in a 105 games. You have an injury on that. You have consistency. He's a repeat offender. It's just you're starting at 12 games to begin with right there because the CBA, it's very clear in there. If you continue to not to violate the rules then you're going to continue to get increased suspensions. So it's part of the deal.
1: So lots of fans hoping that the Winnipeg Jets will be repeat offenders and (laughs) and rack up 114 points this year. Lots of experts are picking the Jets not only to win the President's Trophy, but to win the Stanley Cup. How are the Jets dealing with this pressure of being the favorites heading into the season, Leah?
4: Isn't that crazy? Like, let's just stop there for a moment. When you look at the predictions that the pundits have made – Over 90 percent are picking the Jets not just to win the conference, but to win the Stanley Cup. That is massive and really speaks to where the Jets are when it comes to the world of the National Hockey League. Like We're here in no man's land, according to the rest of the NHL. We're right. That's how we're looked at. You know, the ratings are never super high for the Jets. They're not this huge draw, but they will be this year. Because they are the Stanley Cup favorites, and there's a reason for that. It's interesting because I remember Blake Wheeler uh, last spring saying,
2: "Everybody, like, pump the brakes. Yep. Like, we haven't even made it to the second round. We've never made it to the second round." And he was trying to like tamper those expectations, right? Yes. And here we are, four months later,
4: and it, oh boy,
2: have they even gone farther?
4: And Lauren, it's it's funny to me because let's just put this into a little bit of perspective. And the fact of the matter is, is that it took them to Game Seven against Nashville to get out of the second round. So it's really a coin flip in a game seven with those two teams and how equal they were. It could have been the Predators that came out of that. So we are really, we were one loss away from going out in the second round. That's a very different narrative than we went to the Western Conference. There's a very big difference between, oh, they lost in the second round and hearing that they went to the Western Conference. And then in that Western Conference, only won one game. And then they were swept out against the Knights. So there's a lot of work still to be done here to go over that hump of even just getting out of a conference final. The one thing that the Jets have on them this year is the fact that I think for uh, when they started the playoffs last year, seven of their players had playoff experience. Now they have all of this experience. They know what it takes. They understand how hard it is. They all went into the off season, if you speak to them, with this feeling of unfinished business. But anyone who's been around athletes knows that the outside noise it does not affect a team. And there's no way in that organization and that dressing room, if you've been inside of it, that Paul Maurice or Blake Wheeler is going to let a single person on that roster ever let anything go to their heads. And we don't know what's going to happen. Injuries occur, knock (laughs) on wood. We really don't know how this season's going to play out. But it is pretty fun that right now, at the start of the season, the Winnipeg Jets are the Stanley Cup favorites. I've never said that before.
0: Well, and it's also pretty fun to have you as part of the team and have you in studio. Thank you so much for popping by, Leah Hextall. We very much
1: appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Winnipeg has had its battles with different street drugs over the years, Brett and Loren, and as Richard Cloutier told us yesterday, what separates meth from anything we have seen in the past is that it is predictably unpredictable. Rob Grierson is the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service
5: Medical Director.
1: He's also an ER doc at HSC. We
5: have not seen anything like this and, and, and the reason being, whether it's cocaine or opiates, I mean the, the timeline and the predictability, all of those drugs for the most part, you, you have a finite time of involvement and you have a predictable outcome. So if we use, let's use something really simple, let's use alcohol for an example. Um, you can take somebody who's taken a certain amount of alcohol and I can reliably predict what the next few hours of that individual's course is going to look like. So using an example, we do wonderful work at Main Street Project where we have people who are intoxicated every day on alcohol. We bring them in and we keep them safe. And we do that with paramedics with you know some extra training and, and some process and some protocol. And the reason we're successful is I can predict. And we can predict what that person's going to look like in one hour, two hours, four hours, and six hours. And we know exactly what that looks like and we can safely manage those. That doesn't happen with this drug, with crystal methamphetamine. You don't know what they're going to look like. And, and you can, you know, it, it's interesting, there's obviously repeat individuals that we see and we kind of know the individuals and we know how they're going to behave and predict when it's alcohol and other things. With this, all bets are off. So then you, you're really, it's a moving target. You don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know how long the course is going to be. You don't know what's coming around the next corner. You know, you can be talking to these people and you think... You know, you think you have a good sense of where this discussion is going and where the interview is going and where the call is going. And then on a dime, it turns. And now you're dealing with something completely different. And that is unprecedented.
1: Frontline workers, as we've been telling you, are in the crosshairs of this crisis. For many, the lack of a reliable tool to level the playing field has been a source of frustration and has been putting those workers' safety in jeopardy. A new tool is on its way to help those workers who may encounter someone in a meth-induced psychosis. What is that plan? Well,
5: here's Dr. Grarson one more time. To provide an antipsychotic medication called olanzapine, which is probably the standard of care for that type of a presentation. And so we'll allow that for the providers like the the paramedics that work for Winnipeg Fire Paramedic to be able to provide that to individuals. So basically we'll we'll have a range. If someone presents with crystal meth and they have a clear somatic complaint, like they're having a heart attack, they're having a stroke, they're having some other kind of condition, obviously our first and foremost, our goal is to treat that condition. And that's what we will do. If somebody presents with crystal meth and they're agitated beyond control and they're kind of where we consider them excited delirium, then we'll invoke that component of it where we'll call for the police, we'll safely restrain them, we'll give them intravenous and IM medications and transport them to the hospital. There's gonna be a group in the middle and the numbers we'll, we'll see, but I mean, I'm, I'm pretty confident there'll be a, a fair number of people who haven't quite gotten to the point where they're agitated and, and you know unsafe, but they're starting to get there. And the sooner we can treat those people, The better it is for everybody obviously it's better for the patient which is the goal ultimately but it's also going to be safer for all the providers along the way
1: now as if there aren't enough strains on police resources as they deal with the criminal activity generated by those searching for the resources to purchase meth there is also a demand for backup from police to aid frontline health care workers and ems along with paramedics dealing with patients who often aren't interested and accepting care or are under the direct influence of the worst effects of this powerful drug. The drain on
5: resources is multi-layered. It's taxing our resources for sure. In what way? Well, just in terms of the, the volume and the length of time that people are involved in the care of this. So when you look at people at people who come in, I mean, you can manage the acute phase of the the, the the drug, right? You can look after their heart chest pain and you can look after the heart problems and those types of things. It's the after phase it's it's that duration of psychosis and how long does that last and if you can only imagine I mean if you get people with different drugs and you know every one of them is requiring three or four or five days to be safely managed that that duration of time and, and that resource strain is, is becoming excessive
3: It's time it's space it's beds it's yeah. uh, personnel it's all and and
5: again above. and it, it is not you need to watch these people. Right. And, you know, and it's kind of funny, the uh, the the whole concept of, you know, we'll put people on crystal methamphetamine in a a drunk tank cell. Right. That's never going to work. Right. If you have someone who's floridly psychotic and scared, the last place they need to be is in a concrete cell with with bars in the window. You're only going to escalate their behavior. You need to watch these people. You need to provide a safe environment for them. You need to do vital sign checks on them. There's a number of things you need to do to ensure the safety of these individuals.
1: Plenty of video, and you can read much more on this story at (laughs) cjob.com.
0: We ran a lot about meth this week.
2: Yeah, and of course, the impact it's having on police, paramedics, even ordinary Manitobans. It's also led to a war of words between the MGEU, which is the union representing 90 security guards at the Health Sciences Centre, and health officials, with the union saying its guards aren't clear on the authority or power they have to intervene, and the health minister saying they have all the power they need. This was Cam Friesen last week.
5: They have the ability, they have the competency, they continue to be well-trained, and they have the authority under the uh, criminal code to uh, to actually address these situations and to act. But
2: it was that statement that prompted a now-retired security guard from HSC to speak out, coming exclusively to CJOB and Global News to share what it was like to work at that hospital, the rise in violence he says he's witnessed over three decades, and how he says the rules are far from black and white.
6: Adults emerge there and helicopter pad up there.
2: HSC was his home away from home for 30 years. And in that time, Kevin Donald says the hospital has seen a lot of change. But for the former security guard, the biggest isn't in the ER's look, but it's feel.
6: Lashing out, kicking out, spitting, everyone spits. Um, Biting. but magnify that 50 times over when I started.
2: When he first started in 1988, Donald says tense situations requiring hands-on intervention with patients happened maybe once per shift. By his last day in the summer of 2017, he says that too had changed.
6: You'd be praying or hoping that there's maybe only two or three per shift now.
2: He says he's had cracked ribs, a separated shoulder, and on one occasion, after he was hit with someone else's bodily fluids, was told to receive HIV treatment just in case.
6: That's pretty scary in itself.
2: But that's not why the retired security guard is speaking out. He says he's talking because while guards are intervening, it's simply not clear how they're supposed to respond.
6: I'll I'll go back to the the old days. Um, If medical staff directed us to escort them out, we would try the, you know, please sir ma'am, come with us. Uh, if they started getting aggressive, like uh, stance like fists up in the air, or the, you know, the, the, the feet are apart and the hands are up, then it was hands-on, and it was as much force as necessary to take them out the door.
2: Okay, so the last five years in that scenario, have that changed?
6: Yes. How so? Uh, more of a disengage, hands-off, uh, open-hand approach, Um, and failing that, call the police.
2: Donald believes that shift came within the last decade when two guards were charged for using too much force.
6: We were constantly reminded by, I guess I'll say my management, by the security management that um, you could be taken to HR and disciplined for not following their directives.
2: When he was a supervisor, he says he was once disciplined after another guard under his watch was accused of making a false arrest. Donald says during his time there, policy dictated they were not to use the handcuffs they carry.
6: It clearly states you will not handcuff patients.
2: His former union, MGEU, says the confusion has only grown worse. Last week, it got a legal opinion that says HSC security guards don't have the right to use any more force than a private citizen. The health minister has insisted that's wrong.
5: All security officers in these facilities have the ability, have the training and are licensed under the criminal code to intervene and make that uh, intervention.
2: Like the cloud hanging over HSC the morning of our visit, the former security guard says all that's done is left guards feeling they're working in too much gray.
6: You do your job, you're going to HR. You don't do your job, you can go to HR. But we have your backs, guys. Just relax. Relax.
2: So that was Kevin Donald, a retired security guard who spent 30 years working at HSC. We went to both the WRHA and the province to ask about his concerns over training and whether they can even use those handcuffs or not, like he said, was stated in their policy. The WRHA responded, saying they stand by their previous statements, which says the guards have all the training and power they need. But certainly no black and white in this story.
1: It sounds like a ton of shades of gray here. Outstanding reporting here, Loren. And and the story is one that I think is resonating with a lot of people. And I, I think. That's a kind of a state of flux. We, a lot of us feel right now about what do you do this morning? I was in a situation. I told you there was a suspicious car on my street at four o'clock this morning. I, I, I left the house a little bit later than I normally do. Notice that the vehicle was slowing down, didn't have a license plate. What's the deal with that? So I followed it around my neighborhood. Long story short, the one time when you would think you'd be able to get a police car when you want it. Well, I was told that there had been several serious incidents overnight and they wouldn't be able to dispatch a car right away, even though it was pretty clear to me and the dispatcher the officer on the non emergency line on the other side that that something was up to the point they were telling me to keep my distance and was very they were very concerned about my safety and that i wouldn't take things into my own hands, so I experienced that this morning as a citizen i couldn 't imagine having that hanging over me in my job on a daily basis and he
2: admitted that there's always been a little of those shades of gray right i mean that there's always been you have to you have to use your best judgment call in all sorts of scenarios, which is the same with police officers it might be the same, same with a lot of uh, Frontline workers. Which That's the same with
1: our job right. as well, you're, right? You're
2: always fluctuating. What what he what, he's, what he feels is that maybe the WRH... is. WRHA is clear. Maybe the health minister is clear on how this is supposed to work. But somewhere in the middle, the messaging has gotten mixed. And he also brought up in his last year, he, um, in his last training session that he ever had, the police are brought in once a year to help them out. He was given training on you know, how to use not to use non-physical intervention, verbal intervention, body stance, and all the rest. But they skipped over the part about hands-on intervention and use of force. And so he says you're left feeling like they're not giving those tools because they don't want you to use them.
1: Well, I can tell you this, one of the most popular ways to spend time on a Saturday or Sunday in my house, if sports is not involved, has to do with home renovation shows. And there's only one show where I feel completely inadequate when I watch it, (laughs) and it has anything to do with Mike Holmes. Mike Holmes and Mike Jr. Join us now. (laughs) Season two of Holmes and Holmes premiering on HGTV Canada. Gentlemen, thanks for taking some time with us here in Winnipeg. Thanks Good for morning us. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike senior, I'll start with you because uh, anytime I watch one of your programs, it's a mixed blessing because I I love the advice you, you share and, and your expertise is, is top notch, but I get these little, these inklings that something that I've done somewhere in my past would not pass muster with you. So uh, it's with a little bit of trepidation that I watch your program, but I don't don't think that's uncommon.
7: It's funny you say that because I think a lot of people, handyman, whether it's a DIY or even real contractors out there, we've all made mistakes, and the whole thing about making a mistake is making it right. And then learning as much as you can, especially if you're in the trade. So even if you did make mistakes, you can look back at it and say, okay, the next time, or I can go back and fix that, or the next time I know exactly how to do it, uh, providing you didn't cut the structure or play with electrical or reroute the plumbing in any strange particular way, and you, you got to phone us and we got to come in and we got to make it right. Yeah, we're talking finishings here. Oh. <laughs>
1: well- yeah, yeah, of course, just finishings, Junior. And uh, I guess the other the flip side for me on that, uh, Mike, is uh, working with your dad. I used to work with my dad once upon a time, and he would leave these little sticky notes, and it always felt like he was yelling at me.
3: <laughs> I think that's how I read his text messages sometimes. I'll open it up, I'm like, eh, and I'll read it out loud, and I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe it's just in my head I read it that way. <laughs>
2: So, seriously, no, though, <laughs> when, you, when you do home renovations, I mean, nothing can be more stressful. My husband and I have gone through that with our basement, and I'm not saying we fought, but we certainly didn't agree on a lot of things. And so now you're in the house with your dad. Has there been a few tiffs along the way?
3: Oh, God. You know what? We butt heads. We butt heads all the time. We disagree. We argue. But, you know, what? at the end of the day, it's knowing that it's a job. And outside of that, we're family. We're friends. We're 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 able to disagree. And that's the beautiful thing about opinions is everybody has one.
0: Mike Sr., I joked earlier that, uh, you know, I don't know anything about tools or renovations. Uh, I'm completely inept in that department. I just said that I would ask penetrating questions like, what's a joist? But the idea of actually learning about renovations kind of terrifies me. So for people like me who maybe would like to learn how to do just basic stuff around the house, uh, aside from watching your show, of course, where should someone like me begin Well, I think
7: watching the right television show is going to be everything, because 15 years ago, that's exactly how my show started. It was me being upset that the show sucked on the channel. Uh, However, 15 years later, it's all about you learning. Uh, It doesn't mean you can do it yourself. There's a lot of people that just can't do it. I've met people that played piano for millions of years and still can't play the piano. But what I'm trying to do is teach you what you need to know, so that if you do bring someone in, or you know how to bring in the right people, and you do know what a joist is or a TJI, uh, what is, it, what is it, a TJI or an LVL? An LVL <laughs> laminated veneer lumber, and TJI
3: is a uh, TJI. It's a manufactured floor joist. Yeah, it's a manufacturer. Man,
7: yeah. But <laughs> it's it's the point that you get to know these things and and just learn how to deal with it, rather than you know t- playing at all and not knowing anything. So if I I said you got to use that orange product. It's not orange paint. You know what is that orange product? And it's curdy or Ditra or correct, French luter. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: yeah exactly. so, so Mike Junior, I, I I can uh, sort of. I uh, sympathize with, with what you go through. My, my grandfather was a master carpenter. Yeah. He built sets for the CBC way back in the day and built this and built that. And I once built a garage with him when I was 15. And the neighbor at the time, I'd known since I was four years old, when she came to my wedding, she reminded me of that summer about my grandfather yelling at me because I couldn't hit the nail straight. And yeah. he would kind of get all angry. That Jeez, can't you just... Find the head of the, n- Get nail. the
3: nail. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, hey, you know what? It's it's not like that with my dad. I will say he's very, he's very patient. He's a calm man. And growing up, he didn't yell. He wasn't like, if he did yell, you knew him like, okay, you know, I really messed up. I, I deserve this one. I I need to, you know, just sit down and uh, and listen. Um, but he he's very patient. He always said, ask a lot of questions. So, Uh, He's a great teacher and it's something, you know, we have our different ways of doing things, but uh, I mean, he's been, it's been a pleasure working with him. I've learned a lot from him. And by having someone who's such an expert uh, as your teacher, I mean, it really pushes you. And I like a challenge. So I'm always wanting to be better and learn that much more and, and try and do something a different way.
2: This is the age of do-it-yourself. I mean, YouTube has given us all sorts of videos on how we can fix things and renovate things and paint things ourselves. Mike Sr., do you, f- do you feel that's helped people out there, or has it kind of made everyone think that they're their own expert?
7: Well, you, yeah, I think you covered both sides of the fence there. I think it has helped. I think it also has encouraged people to attempt things that maybe they shouldn't. But it's, it's not a terrible thing, providing you're not doing anything that is – Going to cause a fire, going to make the house explode, messing with things you shouldn't touch. I think it's okay to go ahead and and, and do trim and paint. But I, I I will remind you, if you were to paint and uh, a latex over an oil, Mister Holmes, what will happen? That latex will peel. It
3: won't even bond mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, it's not going to stick. It's a, they're two different beasts. It's like mixing oil and
0: water. It doesn't mix. Yeah. So how do you know then if, like, because that's another thing I hate (laughs) is painting. (laughs) So how do I know what I'm working with? Well, I mean, at that
3: point, you can just bring in a professional. So, you know, a professional is going to know whether it's oil, whether it's latex, um, or you can have it tested. Um, If you hate painting, i say, just say, bring in a professional. I mean, there's, there's professional painters out there that make it look easy. Painting is not easy. I personally don't have the patience for it. I can paint, but I... Cutting in a wall, dry, I, I'm not going to lie, it drives me nuts.
7: Actually, I encourage it. Paint away. Learn to use the brush. And if you're unsure whether or not there's an oil on the wall, all you have to do is buy a primer sealer that will cover an oil paint always. And it's a great, a great uh, sealer that you would put down before you paint. And you never make that mistake. So making sure you do things right the first time, well, you actually save some money.
1: I think uh, I found one of your videos that saved me uh, such a hassle. I was painting the front of my house, and I guess when they installed the door originally, they'd use some non paintable or unpaintable caulking. Uh, yeah. And so the suggestion was either in one of your books that I've got or on a video was just to cover that with paintable caulking and then you could paint it. And it was like, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was going to have to rip out the entire door and start from scratch. So so thanks, Mike. You saved me about 10 grand on <laughs> well, that. Look at tip that. You're actually
7: learning something. All right. <laughs> Doing
1: something right, Mike. That's right. <laughs> 15 years as a television star and all the things that you've been doing, Mike, uh, one of the things that, that uh, I always uh, just loved about you is the way you interact with people, that genuine connection that you both have at the end of these projects. But can you just talk before we let you run here about your time in Louisiana? That must have been pretty incredible when you when you helped uh, build uh, several homes in in Louisiana after the after the hurricane there.
7: Man, did we learn things there. I mean, right. the whole point was to go and help show how to build a home that just can't be blown down by Mother Nature, another Category 5 hurricane, or build it off the ground in certain areas. But I tell you, man, we went in there. We didn't know a lot of people, and we had to tell a lot of people who we are, why, they're, why we're there, and what we're going to do. By the end of it, I think we had uh, so much respect for everyone there, but just trying to get, like, electricity brought to the area was hell. It took us, what, yeah. a month yeah. you know, running off a of generator.
3: Yeah, it was, you know, the job was delayed itself. We were supposed to get down there. The, the footings and the foundation was already supposed to be done, and we were actually helping the uh, concrete formers form for the footings and the foundation as we got there. So it was like... It
7: was, it was a struggle there, for sure. People, like, it, it wasn't going the way it should have gone. However, in the end of it all, it, it was wonderful to be on time, on the anniversary of Hurricane three Katrina, years. three years later mm-hmm. that uh, we brought the family home, only to leave to the airport, because in 24 hours, Hurricane, it was it Gav- Gav- Gavistan? No. Or- yeah. Something it, like there's that. a hurricane. A hurricane. You know, and I wanted to stay there with the cameraman. It's like, come on, let's film this. We're going to show this house can take on anything, which it would have. But it was one of my people at the office that called and said, Mike, I think you should come home, because what if it happens again and you're stuck there for six weeks without food and there's craziness? And I went, okay, book my book. I'm coming home.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mike Sr. and Mike Jr., thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate the time very much. Well, thank, thank you. you Keep making us. it right. All right, season two of Holmes and Holmes debuts Sunday. This Sunday, October seventh, at nine o'clock Winnipeg time. That's so ten o'clock Eastern or Pacific on HGTV Canada. We want to start with an update on what's turned out to be a really great story.
2: Yeah, Miriam Dunn sent out a social media request. She lives in Nova Nova Scotia, and she said she wanted strangers to send her father birthday cards. Gerard Dunn celebrated his 93rd birthday with the help of people from all over the world as a result of that one tweet, including many of you, we are certain, who sent him cards and letters. Here's Global's Ross Lord, who visited Gerard in Sydney, Nova Scotia.
8: Uh, Receiving mail is, is a part of my day, the same as... Meals and everything else that I do. I pretty well have it down when the mailman comes 1030 or whatever and <clears throat> I'm just hoping that I'll get something besides a bill from the bank like I got this morning and uh, I never dreamed it would come to this. I'm not surprised at what's happening. I'm surprised at the volume of it. That is unbelievable. I still. How can I get through all of this? This is this is something special in going on in the world, and these people are all involved in it. They wanted to get in on. It. There's not one of them you can pick up and open at random that's looking for anything other than just to wish somebody good day, happy day, or whatever. This, of course, does a, a yeoman job of, of of reminding me what the outside world is made of, but. Uh, no, my life doesn't is not very exciting right now compared to when I was in good shape. I had my muscles good and so on. But uh, all the goodness is still there. It's all still there. My family visits when they can, and sometimes they visit when they can't. I'm not my peace of mind when
1: the Remember Miriam told us how much he loved his music, so it was neat to see Gerard behind the piano. And he says every time he turns around, it feels as though he's answering the door to accept another delivery of mail. Uh, What did he say here? I think we topped the record with the number that we have, says his letter carrier, as Dunn examines a mail bag, jammed with tightly packed cards and letters. And Dunn said he figured there were about 500 in that in that package and here's something maybe we didn't know gerard himself is a former canada post mail handler and supervisor of course we spoke with miriam dunn just a few days ago touched off this growing campaign of kindness by inviting people on twitter to send cards to her father for his now 93rd birthday she uh, hoped it might ease his transition after his wife his wife her mom of more than six decades ellen Passed away, it seems to have done just that.
2: And if you want, give Miriam a uh, follow on Twitter. She's been daily posting, you know, like the mailman showing up with another round of cards, and there's pictures of her dad, how he's reacting. But she's also just taken photos of the cards, so you can kind of see the mixture that's out there, which is really neat to see as well. I love the whole story. Like it goes to show you what that just that one piece of mail. Do to make a difference in your day.
1: Well, I don't know if like if you get thank you cards or birthday cards in the mail or anniversary cards anymore. It's such a rarity that it's sort of come around the other way. It was always exciting when you were younger. To get mail, and then as you got older, of course, the predominant mail you got were bills, yeah. so that made the, the 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 going to the mailbox a little bit less exciting. But now, every once in a while, I'll get uh, you know a wedding invitation, which is cool, or a thank you card. I love when someone goes to the trouble of sending a thank you card. There is something special about
0: that. I am. Uh, I have two minds on the thank you card. If I've already been thanked, like if you is like, let's say you thank me for something, hey, Brett, thanks. That's good enough for me. But then you turn, then you go out of your way to send me a thank you card. I'm like, well, this is nice, but you already said thanks. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I feel like you're just wasting your time and energy. If you have it, like if, let's say, I don't know, I did a favor for you from afar. Right, and our paths haven't, haven't crossed yeah, or something like that. And then that. you go out of the way to say because that's happened where I've received thank you cards from staff here. Sure. Who like, you know, once they left, they, we didn't have an opportunity to say even goodbye. So I got a thank you card saying, hey, thanks for your help. So that was nice, but uh sending the thank you card after thanks have already been given. I just think that's a bit I much.
2: like the thinking of you more than the thank you. My sister is excellent. She'll just uh, cards will appear for no reason at all and and she goes and she will go through the Apple app, I think, and make them with some photos and it's it's often for just no reason. and so you'll open up the mail and there'll just be this nice card with some pictures like impose on the cover and she'll just say, thinking of you, you know, have a great day. You and you do the same thing? And so what I've started doing now is I've bought like a bunch of just um, blank cards and everyone, I, I've probably done it three times in the last, say, five months. But if you're driving home and I think of someone, like I sometimes I'll have them in my purse or I've pulled them out of the cupboard and I'll quickly write a note and drop it in the mail just because I know how it feels now to get that. And so I'm trying to incorporate that more because it, that, it really is taking so much more time than that text to say, hey, how are you?
1: How about with the kids? How about with the little ones? Do you make them do some sort of thank you, like birthdays? I don't know how the birthdays go where you guys celebrate, but I'm seeing a growing trend, and I kind of like the trend, where you know how you used to gather around and watch that birthday person open their presents? That's starting to go away a little bit, like kind of doing that in private and just to have the party and have some fun or whatever. Uh, Do you force your kids to to send a thank you card or an email or something like that? We still
2: use the technology a bit more. Like uh, I will make sure that I record a video. Like say if someone sent a present from. Oh, that's
1: a great idea. So
2: I'll record the video of it, especially if it's from a grandparent or whatnot. Because really the the fun of giving a present, as we all know, is just seeing that reaction, especially if it was like like a bike or whatever. And so I'll record a video or I'll make sure I take a picture or the video might just be them saying you know, thanks, Grandma. Love you, and send that away. But still, that doesn't take the same amount of time as a card. So, a card would be a nice thing for them to get into. Cards are still nice.
0: What about the Christmas card? I've always I saw oh, somebody yeah. I saw somebody do because no. I don't have you know it's just me I and mean, we have a girlfriend See, now. But that's I don't a card have kids. I want to get. I just well, want to
2: get a card with Brett on it.
0: Well, and I, I'd like I, I want to steal <laughs> this idea that I saw from somebody. It was this woman who's been single forever, and every year she sends out a hilarious. Christmas card, and there was one that she sent where it was multiple versions of her sit like just superimposed, like five of her sitting on a couch, and (laughs) one to create a family. Yeah, one of them was her passed out drunk on the table, and (laughs) the other one was throwing things at the wall, and uh, it's they're kind of sad but sort of funny. So that's the kind of card I would like to send, but I, I'm too lazy to. Yeah, the Christmas
1: card, and then of course, with the Christmas card, quite often, if you're getting a card from a certain generation, is the Christmas letter.
2: Oh, I, and I wanted! The, yeah. I wanted to
1: start a website posting all these Christmas. Well, some letters. of them are
2: too. Like, <laughs> do you get so the letter; over the oh, top. they're, they're overbraggy. Like so and so, like got seventy-seven percent on their science test this week, and you're like, I feel like, is this necessary? Really? Or it's the opposite. Hasn't been a good year for Donna, <laughs> and then they tell you why, and you're like, does everybody? <laughs> <laughs> need to know like what just happened I made up that name by the way there's no Donna in my life but do you think uh,
1: Brett Kavanaugh sends out uh, the Christmas letter like from 1982 uh, July was great Beach Week and uh, did my uh, brewskis and my uh, lifting weights and all that sort of stuff I, I don't know I'd he's, like to go back and talk he's a
2: calendar guy he's got lots of yeah, things in his calendar I he might be so. that organized mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Maclean McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB open last night at Bell MTS Place Cirque du Soleil Crystal we had a conversation on Tuesday with two of the performers in the show Winnipeg's own Robin Johnstone and her husband Andy Buchanan who is from Edmonton uh, but uh, that's, okay. Not, that's okay that's that's Saskatchewan
1: yeah it's sort of <laughs> so but they're, Saskatchewan west but anyway
0: they're both skaters in the show and Cirque du Soleil has created its first ever on ice production, so like anybody, you've been to a Cirque show, yeah, Greg? Yes. Okay, McNabb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cirque yeah. so, was
2: my last one.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that was the one that was under the big top on uh, Route 90 last year, the same spot where Cavalia was this year, and this was a uh, I didn't know what to expect, right? Uh, because I'm used to the acrobatics, or sometimes there's dancing, but this kind of this had that and skating and different kinds of skating. They the crashed have. ice dudes, right?
1: Yeah. And what's crashed ice for those who don't know? Crashed ice is this crazy course. It goes from a high elevation down to a low elevation. They've I think the world championships were in Edmonton last year. So they did it on the the uh, side of the river valley. They went up top all the way to the bottom, four or five abreast. They crash into each other literally. It's like a
2: water slide.
1: Correct, but, 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 but frozen. Just with frozen, with jumps, and then you get and, your
2: skates on and it, you go. And they're actually
1: striding as they're going downhill. It's an incredible sport. We have to find a way to bring it to Winnipeg.
0: Yeah, for sure. But yeah, so you, so there, there, the crash dice guys were doing jumps and stuff and flipping around in the air. Uh, they were acrobats doing trapeze things and tumbling and. Uh, it was just a mixture of speed and grace and elegance and and in typical Cirque fashion, kind of like acid trip sort of stuff. They do, you know, <laughs> and, you, and that's the whole point. It's, it takes place in a dream, so there are right. some things where you just kind of go, "What is going on?" In a good way. Uh, I mean, there were many moments that just, like, took my breath away, you know? Like, that's why I like going to to see the Cirque shows or the Cavalias. You know, you see these feats of incredible strength, but also the, you know, wonderful grace, like Andy and Robin got to dance together, uh, just the two of them, which was nice, especially knowing that they were husband and wife in real life. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes me feel these sort of sappy thoughts, like, wow, human beings are capable of... Creating such beauty. Wow, I, I think you're getting romantic that on us, Brett. That is a deep thought. Wow. I like
1: it. We should have had some like music playing underneath, a little nice little romantic music underneath. I don't, I don't know, like.
0: Uh I was going to say Sade or something like
1: that. like
2: Unchained Melody with a symbol.
0: <laughs> oh, what, what is it? Is, is, is there a pottery class uh, happening next door here? Is this a scene out of Ghost? Out of Ghost, yeah. <laughs>
6: mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, they've created a brand new, like a, a completely new brand of ice show. It's exciting to see where they can go from here. So it's playing at Bell MTS Place through the weekend. I would recommend seeing it. I think I would put Curios ahead of it in terms of like, because that show just blew my mind for some of the stuff that, like, when they had the people eating dinner, hanging upside down. With the table, yes, oh, and then they God. climbed
2: it and everything, yeah.
0: But this was still really cool, and kudos to all the performers. It was really great. How about the music? Live music, too, yeah, it was great. It fit in nice, and they, they had some, some pop hits, some reworked pop hits. They also had live uh, band playing in the back. So, yeah, the whole thing, I mean, they put on such a great production. So
2: Do you follow the storyline when you're watching those? Like, do you actually feel like you get what the point might be or the narrative so to speak. Uh, Yeah
0: I mean she was you know sort of trapped in this dream and trying to fight her way out and eventually she does break out. But
2: you would have got that without knowing going in because I'm sometimes I've gone to like lots of shows and you know you get out and you're none of you are sure what the heck you just you like it but you don't know what the point was. Well
0: you know what because I knew what the story was I'm not sure if I would have gotten it but uh, she she falls through the ice she's in a dream and then she has to fight her way out. Go see it bottom line. As mentioned earlier this week's small-town salute, rather interesting addition. We're going to a place called Poplar Field, Manitoba. Now, the way that I came about learning about Poplar Field was a little odd, totally random, and pretty cool. I was golfing at Kingswood in LaSalle about a month ago, I guess. I went by myself after work one day. Sometimes I can rip through the course pretty quick if it's not too busy, but... Eventually, I caught up to a tournament that was ahead of me, so I was waiting at the seventh tee box, and I just paired up with the guys who rolled up after they finished the sixth hole while I was still waiting. Jim and Andy were their names, both in their 70s, nice guys, interesting guys. Andy, in particular, had lots of stories to share, and we had lots of time because we were waiting on every shot. That's when I learned... He was from Poplarfield, So immediately I started thinking, small-town salute. So Andy Liotchko came into the station earlier this week. We had a good chat. On the show, on the air today, I played a condensed version of that conversation because we spoke for 30 minutes. Don't have 30 minutes to play the whole thing on the show, but... He's such an interesting guy. I thought I would just tack the entire conversation on at the end of the podcast for you to enjoy. He's got some great stories. I hope you listen to all of them.
9: Pothrafield is in the interlake. It is uh, about 85, I guess, 85 miles uh, uh, northwest of Winnipeg, and it's an intersection of Ericksdale to Arbor and Winnipeg through to Fisher Branch. So that's the intersection there. That's Pothrafield. And... How long were you there? Uh, I was born in 1944, April the 11th, in a rural area, in, in a little log cabin. I born at home. And uh, it was amazing because it was spring, and it was a very wet spring. There were no roads. The only means of transportation was uh, by horse and wagon, Wow. And we were 16 miles away from the hospital. So fortunately, there was a midwife, uh, no relation of ours, but the same last name, Barbara Liachko, And uh, my brother went and got her, and she happened to revive me. I was uh, born, uh, just had been born, and she rushed into the house, and she managed to. I had some obstruction, and she, uh, she brought me to life.
0: You live in Winnipeg now?
9: I live in Winnipeg, yeah. Uh,
0: You get get back out to Poplar Field?
9: Yeah, we get out to Poplar Field. Um, My my parents are buried there, so uh, we get out every year to uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, they were my parents. And um, Poplar Field will always be home. What's it like? Well, it's small now. Uh, when I was going to school, we had about 140 people residents in Popperfield, and uh, then as people moved on, moved into the city, and so on, they uh, they kind of uh, uh, left the place. Fairly empty. There's probably 70 people that live there now, a maximum of 70. But we have some very prominent people from Poplarfield that I always like to mention. Uh, the Canadians chain of hotels is owned by Leo Ledkowski, and I went to school with him. Oh, he wow. He's from Popperfield, yeah. Um, Bill Yerusky is a very good personal friend. He was uh, an RCMP officer for five years, and then he was an MLA for about 12 in that area. A very co- good, close friend. So uh, these, these kind of people, uh, when they come from Potterfield, everybody says, well, Potterfield is not a big deal. But no, but for us, it's home. You know, and uh, it's a good Ukrainian community, um, uh, very, very close. Uh, I think we only had maybe one or two other ethnic groups. But other than that, it was just Ukrainian.
0: How do you get there from Winnipeg?
9: Uh, you drive uh, a <laughs> well, highway, I think it's Highway 7. But you uh, go through, um, uh, head out towards Toulon, past Stony Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, head out to Toulon, and then you make a left, and then you continue going on. And you come to the Narciss Snake Pits. And then about another seven, eight miles past that, you get to Popperville.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Snake Pits because you worked for Manitoba Hydro for many years and you've got an interesting story about uh, Narcissus.
9: Well, uh, we were doing an environmental project, a project that I really didn't want to do, but my boss said I had to do that. And it was an environmental project that required uh, certification to ISO 14001. And while the um, project entailed all our, our generating stations and uh, uh, we we really put a lot of effort into it uh it required 4 years of work and we got certified but during that process uh, <clears throat> a fellow from um, a fellow named uh, Johnson uh, said to me Andy we should really do something about <clears> house <throat> uh, snake pit he's from Chatfield which is 7 miles south of Popperfield and we were working together on this project and so as i said before i uh, i uh, wrote a letter to my uh, my vice president uh, Al Snyder, and I said, maybe we could do this uh, snake pit thing. I said, the, 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 um, the mortality rate of the snakes is about uh, 15,000 a year when they cross the highway going west in the springtime, and then when they re-enter in the fall. So Is that just from
0: getting squashed?
9: Squashed, yeah. Well, what they do is, because they like hot pavement, they just get there and they forget that there's cars coming. So uh, um, I wrote this letter and said, I think we could do this, and he brought the letter back and said, you know what? He said, the president approved it, but he says, you're responsible for it. Manitoba Hydro will donate the equipment and manpower, but there will be no overtime time, the work has to be done on the weekend, and we want positive results. So on June the 10th in uh, 2000, we initiated the project, and the deal was that we had these long uh, uh, gas, uh, I guess surplus pipes, they had been used, and uh, we put a cone on them and uh, dragged them underneath the highway, and uh, we did five, and then in the fall we did another eight, so made 13. So uh, that the fencing was made such way that the snakes were funneled through these tunnels, and it was really amazing to see that uh, actually work. So, uh, following that, uh, I know the National Geographic did quite a story on it. Uh, Manitoba Hydro received the Sil- silver salamander award for uh, their contribution to uh, to uh, the snakes, and uh, we. Uh, um, we've managed to get the government to donate $50,000 to an interpretive center. And the irony of all that is that it's attracted so many people. Thousands of people go there, the school kids and that, and... uh, my daughter who's a school teacher now she's in her late 40s uh, when she was 10 years old I think we still have the video she went to the snake pits and we were shocked it was uh, one of the radio st- uh, television stations I think it was CTV but anyway she had uh, about 10 snakes all around her neck and we just shocked we said Lisa would you do that for us she said they don't bite you know yeah. so there was kind of a little bit of a history in that but uh, so that's it about the uh, the snake pits
0: and um, can you see those tunnels? Like if I'm driving along the, yeah. like what, where, what road is it where you put these tunnels?
9: Uh, that's, that's the road that goes through from, from Inwood, Narciss, uh, to Popperfield. Uh, and I think it's Highway 7, but I'm not sure. Okay. And uh, yeah, you could see them. You can actually see the fencing that goes along the highway, along the, uh, the shoulder of the road. And uh, it, it directs the snakes towards the tunnels when they're leaving in the spring and returning in the fall. And uh, uh, people maintain it. And uh, it's uh, it's really, really amazing that in the years before that, so many snakes would get uh, run over. And in the fall time, uh, Brett, if you're driving through, like in September, uh, kind of the end of the migration, it's a, you it was just like as if somebody had, had loose tar on the roads so uh, we felt pretty pretty uh, proud of the work that we did and uh, it was tremendous contribution from 19 hydro employees that volunteered their time and uh, uh, there was no questions asked and they all uh, they all appreciated doing that how long did it take you to complete the work uh, well we had a full day on the on the June the 10th and the 11th, which was Saturday, Sunday, and then we went back in the fall, and it took another two days. It was weekend work, mm-hmm. so it was four days of work, but uh, it, it's really amazing. I know the coverage by National Geographic, and uh, I don't have the history on that, but uh, they were just in awe of the fact that we did such a
0: tremendous job. Well, it's you know. pretty cool to have National Geographic come down and give you that kind of kudos oh. and you know celebrate what you're doing, right? Yes, and, and I, I mean, Hydro has done
9: a lot of, a lot of different things, but um, having um, started with Hydro just briefly in 1963 in Potterfield, um, I was uh, just a laborer. And uh, after uh, getting laid off at Christmas, I was recalled in uh, in uh, January, and uh, my career continued from uh, 1964 through to 1975. I left Hydro for about a year and a half, joined a catering firm, and when they wanted me to move, catering was uh, Cal Van Canis from Vancouver. They wanted me to move to Vancouver and... Uh, we said no, we're not moving. I was fortunate enough to be able to get back on in Hydro, and uh, it's, it's amazing because I was treated very, very well. People uh, like Len Bateman, who was uh, president and CEO, uh, he said he liked the country kids because he knows they're used to work. Okay. So uh, it was it was very, very interesting. Uh, he he encouraged me to take public speaking, at Toastmasters, and. Uh, Uh, He had something like this as an example. He said, uh, Andy, when we ask you a question in our executive meetings, he said, you said, when I was with them, he said, it's not W-I-D-D-A-M, it's with them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I practiced in front of a mirror. I, I practiced, made some terrific uh, presentations, I guess, uh, one speaker of uh, the month. And uh, the only problem is that my friends later on decided that uh, they didn't want to be friends with me anymore because I never stopped talking. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's so, kind of amazing. Even my wife will tell us that. But uh, in, in doing all that, and uh, just as we finished the environmental project, there was an opportunity to go to Nigeria, and uh, not very many people were interested in going. But I had a very good uh, friend of mine, uh, <coughs> Brian Ketchison, that had toured the areas in Nigeria, and he said, The man you want to send there is Andy. And I didn't have a customer service background in terms of electrical stuff, but I did work in the rural areas uh, as a a laborer. And uh, I uh, applied and uh, they offered me the job, but I said, nope, I want my wife to go. And they said, of course she can go. And I said, no, no. She needs to be there and working because she's got an accounting background, human resource background. She works with justice. She's a very good person, and if I don't have her there, I'm not going. So both of us went there for four years, sixty-two to sixty-six, and uh, and uh, it was very very difficult when we first started. But uh, they didn't want us there in a very corrupt uh, area and uh, or country. And uh, but little by little, and I have just a couple little documents here. <coughs> uh, We, uh, in order to get some commitment from them, we decided we would do a mission statement, something that we have at Manitoba Hydro. And we had the same thing when we were doing the environmental management system project. So we got uh, the union and a whole bunch of the uh, managers together, and we said, we'll work towards this. And uh, this was uh, done in August of 2002. Mm. And uh, on the flip side of this we had the calendar. And people didn't remember what days they had off and what days that they were, uh, were um, supposed to work and what days there were payday. So uh, at my personal expense cost me about $150. I prepared this calendar. Ironically uh, and the factual, I created this calendar in Manitoba Hydro when we were there so that we knew when we had Mondays off. Yep. But when the people bought into this, we gave each one of the 500 employees. We had two mass meetings at 250 at one uh, one um, uh, location and 250 in the other. And uh, when the people bought into this, it was kind of amazing because then they wanted many more copies. So every year we produced one after that. And it, it became a kind of a working tool. There was no reason why they should skip work because they knew when the calendar was, um, was stated, uh, stat holiday, when payday was...
0: And um, it, it kind of made a difference. So what was the project that you, you went over to Nigeria? Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, wasn't the idea that you'd be there for like a couple of months or whatever, and you ended up there for a few years? No, uh, it, it was a four-year project. Oh, four four-year, okay.
9: <clears throat> and um, uh, there were nine zones in uh, Nigeria, and um, the government wanted to make sure that each of these zones <clears throat> were self-sufficient and uh, they were revenue generating. The intent was that they wanted to disassociate themselves from uh, owning the electric power utility. And after uh, this four-year project, different uh, different contract areas, <coughs> all these were sold. Ours was sold to um, a billionaire in uh, in Kano named Danfsta, and um, he retained most of the staff that we had in um, working, pardon me, working with us. One of the people that <clears throat> was very, very uh, gung ho about um, Manitoba Hydro and the work they did was a young engineer named Peter Akinribe, Tempitope. and uh, he was uh, he was awesome. He was very supportive. He could also translate. <clears throat> when I spoke in English, he would translate it in Hausa. And uh, one day he said to me, he says, "Mr. Andy, he says, could you teach me to speak like you?" and it was in our house and my wife said no, well uh, Peter you may not want that because then you might never be able to stop <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> so what i did and i'm not bragging but i'm very proud of it that uh, i asked them if they could meet at 7 from 7 to 8 o'clock at three get three women in uh, uh, to join us and four men and uh, we practiced toastmasters for 4 weeks for, for pardon me for four times and then each one chose a topic and I'd be willing to lend you the, uh, the CD where the people spoke about uh, their experience and it, took, it covered a lot about Nigeria, women's rights. Women don't really count that much in Nigeria. They usually are kind of put aside. Well, Peter, um, uh, actually to make sure that this was recorded, he wasn't sure that we were going to have power that day. He actually, at his own expense, hired somebody to record it, tape it, I brought it into Manitoba Hydro, and, uh, and we have a Toastmasters club, and they couldn't believe that these people only had four weeks of eight, eight days of training. Um, we we wanted to get this sponsored, but it didn't materialize that way. But lo and behold, Peter uh, spent a couple of years, uh, his parents uh, supported him going to the U.K., and he got his master's in engineering. And then... Uh, I think it was 2013, in January, him and his family immigrated to Canada. And we, didn't, we sponsored him, but we did not do any financial uh, sponsorship. Uh, we were very proud that in uh, ju- June of this year, Peter and his family were uh, uh, made Canadian. Mm-hmm. And we were invited to observe and have a luncheon with them. and I'm so proud of him. He works for CN. He takes uh, evening courses, and uh, he achieved his dream of coming to Canada. And he, he calls me Father Andy. Oh, nice. Yeah. So uh, those are the, <clears throat> the kind of experiences that we had. And uh, from my wife's side, <clears throat> uh, she's, she was our accountant. She was um, uh, the uh, emergency contact person if somebody had to be evacuated or so on. <clears throat> but she also endeared herself to the schools. And uh, when she visited one of the schools, she she noticed that uh, the floors were kind of um, broken up. People sat, kids sat on cardboards. And, uh, so she said, Andy, could we <clears throat> contribute $1,500? Uh, I got a contractor that would fix up the floors. And and she talked to her the boss, and the boss contributed $1,500 as well. And they redid the floors. And it was so, so amazing. When uh, Nori would walk into the classroom, the kids would all kind of run over to her. Our driver uh, who was umru just an op- absolute perfect gentleman uh, he uh, he had a daughter <clears throat> and uh, the daughter was kind of frail and so on and Nori uh, uh, talked to a doctor about it and Salamitu was her name a nice young girl about five years old and she needed some special medication and uh, treatment and as a result she just uh, bounced into really good, good life. Uh, there was a lot of medication that we brought from Winnipeg to, to treat her. And uh, when we were saying goodbye in uh, January the 19th in 2006, uh, Nori had some special time with Salamatu, and I could still see the day and the evening when they were walking, <clears throat> when, when she, the little girl was walking away from our house and Nori was waving to her and little Salamatu waved. That was a hard part for her, uh, for my wife. And then a year later, her Dad phoned Umur, our driver and he said, uh, Madame, salamatu is no more, and oh. she passed away. So those are the kind of things that uh, the challenges were probably the greatest for her and for me, but the rewards were tremendous. We did have an opportunity to travel quite a bit. We took advantage of traveling in Africa, uh, traveled to Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, um, we had um, a private tour guide that took us through the um, in South Africa past the Nelson Mandela prison. We couldn't go in. Uh, we were in uh, Kenya, in Tanzania, lots of different places. Cairo. We do. We can honestly say that there are pyramids in in there. So the whole <clears throat> package in all this, Brett, is um, uh, life is is is. It's a challenge, and uh, having been raised in, born in Popperfield, a small community, uh, I uh, this has this is very important. I <clears throat> I fell off a horse uh, when I was six years old, and I didn't realize until I was fourteen that that injury caused me to lose my eyesight. And uh, when uh, I was in school, um, lots of times I'd have to ask what the teacher said, and that didn't put me in good. Stayed with the teacher, but we had a male teacher. After all these female teachers, we had a male teacher <coughs> named um, Michael. Uh, I just can't remember the last name now. But <coughs> he uh, he he kind of said, "Sandy, can you see?" And I said, "Yeah, I can see." Well, he did some eye tests, talked to my parents, took me to the city on a Friday to Winnipeg. Dr. F. Gordon Reeves and checked my eyes. He said. I was 14, and that was in September 1958, and he says, My good man, he said, if you'd have come see me a number of years ago, I might have been able to help you more. But as it stands right now, you are legally blind. Your vision is 20 over 400, and the best I could do is prescribe glasses. So as he, I was reading the charts, uh, he gave me the glasses. A week later, when the glasses came in the mail, went to the post office to get the uh, get this package when I put the glasses on. I couldn't believe, Brett. I actually cried when I saw about 15, 20 feet away the individual leaves on the trees. Yeah. And I've worn my contacts. I had um, uh, glasses for years, hard contacts. I have contacts now, and I'm truly blessed to be able to see.
0: Well, that's incredible stuff, man. I I guess you bumped your head when you fell off the horse? I had fracture here. What happened is uh, we had one horse, and I got
9: on the horse, and my brother wanted to get on the horse as well. The horse wouldn't move towards the railing, so he took a twig, and he just kind of snapped it at the horse. The horse reared back, no saddle, and I fell back. Oh, man. And my head cracked open, and uh, my mom and dad weren't home. My, My oldest brother, Tony, who's 85, And my brother, Harry, (coughs) who's 77, they carried me to the house. And uh, they didn't have medical supplies at that time, but they knew that uh, to stop uh, the bleeding, you use bread, a loaf of bread. And yeah, they, they did that. I soaked the pillow, but they burnt it as uh, evidence. They didn't want my mom and dad to know. Uh, somehow I woke up in the morning and uh, said I had a headache and said that I had a fall, but they didn't know the full extent of it. But the, the long and short of all that is that, for the, according to Dr. Reeves, from that fall till I was 14, uh, I could see, but not well. And he said the concussion obviously did damage to my eyes. But I'm 74 now. I could see as clearly as anybody
0: else, yeah. and I'm, I'm just blessed to be alive. I just want to circle back to Nigeria <clears throat> for one more moment before we move on to the last uh, topic, which is marijuana. But were you not brought in there to help? You, were, you mentioned the word corrupt. There was some corruption mm-hmm. over there. And wasn't it because of you that they, you ended up sort of straightening out a lot uh, of the – there weren't people stealing power? <laughs> Yes, what, what happened is uh, <coughs>
9: um, when when we got there, we found out that out of 12 million people, they had about a million and a half customers, but only about a quarter million were paying. And it was not unusual to see a rich man who would have um, many lines going from his house to various little huts, and uh, but he wasn't metered, so he would just... Uh, and, you know, collect money from everybody, but that money wasn't going into the for the company, and uh, so as a result, uh, when we got there, they didn't want us there. The union chairman, who uh, was named N- Nala, he said, "You guys are just going to come and take our money." I said, "No, that's not so." I said, no, "We're we are here to help." Re- get more revenue and uh, as we walked along and uh, talked about it uh, and slowly he kind of warmed up to uh, the fact that we're there to help and the union was very, very very supportive of doing something because what would happen is uh, the management would collect the money and some was remitted, some was not. There were no receipts given. There was no system uh, to, uh, to attentiate the fact that uh, uh, people had paid. So when we were there, we had um, Alata, who was a, um, uh, from Sudan, and he was a terrific techie. And he developed a system that uh, um, when you came in and you paid your bill, you got a receipt. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> but people were reluctant to come into the building because they were often uh, intercepted by somebody else saying you got to give us the money. Well, after we did this system, we set up a, uh, uh, a kind of amazing. Women in Nigeria aren't recognized for anything. There might be a few that have a lot of a uh, lot of uh, uh, credibility, but most of them don't. So. Uh, and I must take responsibility for this. I said, we have to get the women into the banks. So we met with all the banks, and we said, could you uh, put a you know, table and chairs, and we'll have two women coming in here, and they'll be called customer relations officers, and people will be able to come in and pay, and that money will be protected because it'll go to the bank immediately. Well, the management didn't like that because they were missing out on it. But I can tell you that after we introduced that system, the, the president of uh, the National Electric Power Authority was so impressed that he called a meeting in, uh, in Kaduna, uh, which was halfway between Abuja and Kano, with all the senior management people. There must have been 100 people in there. And he asked me to make a presentation on what the CRO mean, customer relations officer. In the matter of about probably a month and a half, they introduced that system to all the other zones as well and, and I'm very proud of the fact that we really garnered a good return for our, our initiative <clears throat> because at the end of the contract there were five key areas that they were checking on to see how well we did. <clears throat> In terms of improved customer services, number one. In terms of cash collection, number two. In in case of training people, engineers, and customer relations officers, number three. In terms of community awareness, number four. In in areas of introducing um, and training people on on computers, when the COO was asked to come in to, we demonstrated what we were doing, and he grabbed that piece of item. And I said, sir, you're holding the mouse. Mouse, he said, that's big enough. It looks like a rat. I said, no, sir, that's the term given for the computer. But when they realized that we, uh, we weren't there to take money, but to help them, a number of people got transferred. Some of the senior people got fired. But all in all, the, the support of the community was, was awesome. And uh, I, I attributed to three things. Number one was uh, acceptance by the union uh, empowerment of uh, females and young people. And, uh, thirdly, when they asked me, uh, what was the key difference? What was the magic? And I said, that the more difficult they made it, the more determined I was to stay.
0: Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool, man. Uh, good for you for, for doing that. And again, you were there, uh, you said you were <laughs> aged 62 to 66. So that was, uh, A 2004 bit. to 2008, I guess. 2002 to 2006. 2002 to 2006. Yeah. Pardon me, uh, and uh, yeah, that's right. Now you're you're 74 now. 74. <coughs> okay. Uh, last question. You also brought in a headline here. I'm just going to look at this. Oh, Yes. <coughs> uh, Manitoba RCMP bust 3.5 million dollar grow grow-up, and that ha- that's a connection. Another connection to Poplarfield as we approach Legalization Day. And when when
9: I say that, um, a quarter section of land is right there. <coughs> My parents had this quarter section of land, and they lived about there.
0: This grow-up was... Well, then just so, just for the, for those listening right now... Half
9: a mile, half a mile away.
0: Okay. So, so it's just a half a mile away from Poplarfield. Uh, it was uh, a little more than half a mile away from
9: the old town of Poplarfield, and uh, a quarter of a mile away from my home, my own home.
0: And how much money... So it's a $3.5 million, million dollar bust. bust. Yeah.
9: So what did they find? They found... Um, Police seized close to 2,000 mature marijuana plants, as well as approximately 25 kilograms uh, of processing marijuana from a property in rural Manitoba. And actually, in this article, they missed out Popperfield. And if you see this in here, it says on September 16, 2001, 158. Last update. 2011. Uh, 2011, yes. Last updated September 16, 2011, RCMP sees close to 2,000 mature marijuana plants growing on. Missing in the uh, the editorial was Poplar Field. Ah. Must include Poplar Field.
0: Okay. So you could say that Poplarfield was maybe ahead of the curve here
6: when it yes, comes to cannabis. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> when it
9: comes and, to cannabis.
0: And with today's paper, it says,
9: yes. You know, these people are saying, "Look, this is marijuana." Well, uh, th- th- somebody, uh, uh, I guess, was caught with uh, marijuana slightly ahead of their time.
0: Yeah, because Manitoba, one of two provinces uh, that are that are a, a no-go on growing plants, even when, even when cannabis is legalized. So, sorry, just knocked some paper off the okay. te- the desk there. So, I guess in closing here, Andy. Um,
9: just before you do that, I have one final thing that I, I want to leave you with this stuff because it's it's important that you have it. When you asked me about uh, the, uh, the what made a difference, there's a letter here that I got. You can read it in your own spare time from the union chairman and the, uh, and the state chairman. And also, our farewell when we were leaving. I'm okay. I'm very top. They wanted to oh, yeah. there you they are. Wanted to acknowledge the contribution, and it was amazing. When my wife and I were leaving on the uh, 19th of January, I am not exaggerating, there was a 40-person honor guard.
0: Wow. Special. So that, uh, it's a, that's a source of pride for you. It sounds yeah. like a real honor. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing the story, and I think we'll leave it there.